Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Greg Peterson here, and welcome to the 292nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where three days a week we work together educating and inspiring you to become part of your food revolution. Nature doesn't waste energy, and by using these natural cycles to work in our favor, we can harvest both fish and plants. Let us teach you how. Text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have someone who knows that plant roots need more than a little dirt to thrive. We're talking to Jake Maurer about crop roots and so much more. Jake was raised on a farm in North Georgia where his family produced broiler chickens and beef cattle. Growing up, the work was often hard, but the food was always good. Life on the farm is a good way to gain an appreciation for the connectivity of food production in our daily lives. Jake now works with farmers in Texas as a Texas A&M faculty member in the Soil and Crop Science Department and as an extension specialist with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension to communicate the importance of managing soil as a natural resource. His research has become focused on the way crop roots behave in their soil environment to better understand the best practices for keeping soils continuously functional and productive, both for people and the ecosystems we inhabit. Welcome to the show today, Jake. Thank you, Greg. It's good to be here. And thank you for being here. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, sure. You know, as you mentioned, I was raised on a farm and that was how we earned our living. There were six of us boys. I feel sorry for my mom sometimes. Wow. She's a real saint. <laughs> no uh, kidding. <laughs> and, and, you know, we worked very hard and we ate very well and we focused our attention on the nutrition you got from staple foods mm. and veg, fresh vegetables. One of the things that uh, I try not to serve as often on my own family table is biscuits. I, I think you know a lot of white flour and lard isn't a real great thing, but right. as long as it's not every day, you can 
maybe indulge. But we, you know, we ate a lot of turnip greens and mustard greens and, and dry beans and cornbread, and we would have a little bit of meat as well. But that sort of informed me on, you know, how much energy it takes to produce enough food to go on the table. Right. Right. For, for a family of eight, and plus a couple of helping hands every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And then how, uh, how that food made you feel. Uh, you know, after dinner and the next day, and did you have enough energy to keep on doing the same thing? And that experience from a very early age sort of informs me on the energy cycle that, Mm. you know, we've Mm -hmm. got sunlight coming to our earth. We've got that sunlight going into plants. We've got all kinds of things happening in this wonderful cycle we're lucky to be part of that eventually, you know, winds up being us, literally. And then uh, we share it back with the world if we're thoughtful and engaged in everything and i think about that when i work with farmers and and when i talk to children my own children other children about the importance of understanding where food comes from and you know i I went to college straight from the farm and i said something to my parents at that point having been a little cynical about the amount of work i'd maybe done between the uh, time I was a very young child and the time I turned 18, I uh-huh. said, I'm done with all this. I drove <laughs> off in my, my little Ford off to uh, the University of Georgia and, and did a degree. And uh, while I was there, I, instead of you know continuing with agriculture, I went and worked with a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, mm-hmm. to uh, pay my way through college and learned quite a bit about cooking. I mean, my mom had showed me a good bit, and I paid attention in the kitchen as we were preparing things. But after college, uh, you know, I got a degree in environmental sciences, and I was very informed about microbiology and energy and chemistry and, and the environment and wildlife and ecologies. And I said, you know, I wound up working for a, a French New Orleans restaurant as a chef, and I stayed with that for several years and, Wow! and became fairly well trained and appreciating flavors and, and, you know, what to combine to get those things and some, some very fantastic techniques for producing fatty foods with sauces and fishes with mm-hmm. uh, citrus. And so that all goes into my feeling. You know, I think about what does it take to really elevate food and then what does it take to really elevate common foods Mm. without putting 40 or 50 dollars per person to a dinner how do you elevate beans and cornbread how do you elevate turnip greens and and uh you know very basic you know chicken breast and turnip greens or or quinoa and black beans and corn how do you elevate these things without spending a tremendous amount of money and and i think about that and that then so if i can go back to the beginning of my story it takes less energy from the world to elevate a simple combination of staples or, or depending on what part of the world they come from, we may not consider quinoa, for instance, a staple here, but right. you think about how much energy it takes to do that. And at the same time, I think we know psychologically as humans that enjoying food, mm. really paying attention to the flavors and, and connecting that with the wellness that is imparted on your own being is very important. And if you can combine reducing the energy and keeping things simple, keeping them healthy, and at the same time participating in an enjoyment of very real fruits of the earth, Mm -hmm. you can really 
really connect and keep keep the cycle tight. And so, all right, so I started on a farm, and mm-hmm. and I went on to chefing, and then I realized that an 80 to 100-hour-a-week <laughs> work week. Right. <laughs> um, it kind of uses you up, right? It does. So I consider myself a reformed chef at this point, and I just I just perform for my wife and kids and, nice. and extended family on a daily basis. I, I got a question for you before we go past sure. this. You've used the word elevate a few times in your explaining food. Can you kind of unpack that word a little bit? I kind of get a sense of what it is, but I'd like for you to share with us what it means to you. Uh, sure, Greg. And I, I suppose I picked that up from my chefing days too. I, I don't think I use it in other areas of art or science, but if you just receive a plate of food and eat it mm-hmm. and you don't pay attention to it, regardless of whether it's well-prepared, skillfully prepared, or whether it's just a bowl of plain oatmeal, if you eat it quickly and don't pay attention to it or you're mm-hmm. not thankful for it on a very personal level, you don't notice. I mean, you're not noticing, you're not paying attention. And then when you do pay attention, there is a difference between a bowl of unsalted, unflavored oatmeal and a nice piece of fish, you know, Mm -hmm. a piece of sustainably fished mahi with, you know, a cilantro and lime Mm -hmm. glaze. Okay. And then, but you notice the difference between those two dishes. And so I would say that, that a well-seasoned, well-balanced piece of lean fish is elevated above a bowl of oatmeal. And there are all kinds of points on the spectrum in between those two. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean. Something Perfect. that is skillfully prepared and well thought out is a little more elevated than something just slapped together. If you just yeah. open a can of beans and dump it in a bowl, those would be sort of extremes of the spectrum. Perfect. Did I unpack that in a short enough amount of time? That was beautiful. Thank you. So, okay. so we'll fast forward your, 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 you know, you kind of move out of chefdom and now you're heading toward Texas A&M. Tell me about that. Oh, we haven't gotten to Texas A&M. Oh, all right, I'm cool. still in North Georgia. I worked as a carpenter for a few years after that because I could have a 40-hour or 50-hour work week, uh-huh. um, get paid a little bit better and, and the stress was a lot lower, but I fell off a ladder. Oh, and uh, was out of work for a little while and fully recovered. You know, it was just the sort of thing that took me a little time. Mm-hmm. And after paying those hospital bills and not receiving an income during that time, I uh, decided that I had a science degree. Why not use it? People mm-hmm. give you insurance for those things. And <laughs> no I kidding. To, <laughs> I went to uh, the University of Georgia. Well, I applied for a lot of jobs, but I got hired at the soil testing lab at the University of Georgia. Oh, nice. And that was a really great place to work. It was a great crew of people. Everyone I knew over the years, hello. You know, you guys are a great experience uh, mm-hmm. to be part of. And I got really, really interested. And after, you know, about three years or so, I, I said, well, I'm doing the same thing every day here. And I think it's time. I really learned a lot about how instruments work, how you know measurement instruments work, and and the purpose of our mission here at the laboratory. And I went to my director and I said, "Listen, I'm doing the same thing every day. I'm a young man. I'm I'm creatively inclined. You know, I'm about to have my first child, and I think you know this is sort of not going anywhere for me. I I could work here for another 25 years, but I'd like more challenge and more responsibility and more pay. And so I'm mm-hmm. going to go." 
look for a job in managing a laboratory nearby. And he said, okay, that sounds great. And, and I told my wife at the time the same, you know, we, we'd been discussing this for a while that, you know, with the new child coming that we would, my son, Oli, hey, how's it going? That we would need, you know, a little more for three people than two. So I, I talked to my director about it. And then I came home with a handful of magic beans because the outcome of that conversation was, Jake, how would you like to go to graduate school? Oh, nice. (laughs) Nice. My grades weren't so great. You know, I don't know if I can get in. uh, Let me work with you on that. Uh So instead of getting a new job, I stayed at the same job and, and took the slow track through a master's degree and had a couple of other jobs where, you know, there's just no way around it. I had to make a little bit more money than I was making. and. Same thing, I got through the PhD program at the University of Georgia, and then I was, you know, ready to take the next step in academia. So I, um, you know, I started looking for jobs as a faculty member. That's what I wanted to do. And after a couple of years, these folks actually hired me. So I was very thrilled, and I love doing this work. I'm, I'm driving through, you know, arguably one of the most beautifully uh, diverse states in the nation. It's very large, so mm-hmm. many eco-regions here, so much natural resources to look at and participate in and meet the people who are growing food right. uh, on a large scale and a small scale and meet people who are making a difference in their communities. I work with the Master Gardener organization. Oh, excellent. Uh, I do probably three or four educational programs with them on, you know, the fundamentals of soil and talk Mm -hmm. about what is needed at all scales to keep soil sustainable and to keep us from having an adverse impact on our adjacent environments by over applying chemicals Mm -hmm. and how to know what how much to use of anything and i i talk about the ways in which we can reduce them and still produce what we want yeah talk about inform them uh, about the concepts that may not be ironed out yet but they can certainly try you know, pest pest control measures, herbis, herb control measures. Yeah. So, so let me chemicals. Yeah, let me jump in here. So, what do you think the most important thing for our listeners to know about soil is? Well, <laughs> the most important thing. Wow, I should have thought of this at some point during my job, shouldn't I? Give me the top three. <laughs> Usually, how I start is is by defining what soil is. All right, go. As, as scientists, we generally say it's soil, right? And we, we, as a collective group, discourage people from calling it dirt. Mm-hmm. I find that, that doing things that way can turn people off. And I'm, I, my colleagues are going to possibly hear this and come down the hall someday. But if you want to call it dirt, you're okay with me. Yeah. Treat, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's soil. Don't treat it like dirt, but you can call it dirt. But I'm afraid that we alienate people or make them feel in the slightest way that they can't be included in having fun mm-hmm. with this subject by by insisting it be called its technical name. And so I say, you know, call it what you want. Play with it. Get to know it. Feel it between mm-hmm. your fingers. So the most important thing is really knowing what soil is. And it's not just... It's not just dirt. I mean, it is a matrix that includes what used to be rocks uh-huh. has broken down to we used to, used to be, you know, the, the bedrock, right? And it broke down into boulders and it broke down into gravel and it broke down in sand, silt and clay. And that's what we call soil. 
But it's mm. not just that gritty stuff, that former mineral rock. It's it's organic matter. Okay, those are the solid portions. But soil, to us soil scientists anyway, is also the water and the air that are contained in all the void spaces between those solids. Mm-hmm. And the soil is not just the organic matter that we we know is decaying, but the soil also contains an amazing ecology that is so poorly understood right now, but every little every time we make an advance in our understanding it's really amazing and soil harbors the it is the largest reservoir of microbial biodiversity on the planet wow really yes whoa so it is an important natural resource so if we're going down the list and i won't go down the whole list but i think people also don't realize that soil is a non-renewable resource or Mm. it is renewable but only on a geologic time scale right and one of the things that i talk to farmers about is if you don't protect the surface of the soil by using cover crops if you have enough water in your annual budget or by leaving residue on the soil and not tilling it and leaving it uncovered uh, if you leave it uncovered you leave it open to wind and rain erosion wind and rain erosion can remove seven to ten tons of soil per acre per year. Wow. That can add up to about six inches mm-hmm. every 20 to 30 years. Wow. So that's an acre. Basically, we call an acre for a slice the what would be the conventional plowing depth of six to eight inches. That's an acre of soil, right? It goes down more deep, deep deeper than that but and when you can lose essentially a plow layer of soil every 20 to 30 years by not protecting it in the ways that are recommended Mm -hmm. and it can build back up every 300 to 500 oh my gosh (laughs) so we better be losing it 10 times as fast Mm -hmm. as we're growing it wow so we we better keep it covered with something yes yes so you mentioned cover crops Right. What are those, and how would one use those, especially in the city? Oh, my goodness. Well, cover crops, a lot of definitions. The USDA has one. SARE, uh, the uh, Sustainable Agricultural Research Education mm-hmm. Group, they are under USDA. They also have a definition. But working with farmers here, I, you know, I'm a researcher and an extension Specialist, I can come up with my own definition that's not as narrow. So I say that a cover crop is any crop you use whose primary purpose is to cover the soil. Most times it's defined as a crop that you do not harvest, but you keep in place to keep living roots in the system. Cover crops are often defined by their special purpose. And so mm-hmm. when you're a farmer, you're an organic vegetable producer, or you're you know a thousand acres of grain corn, in Kansas or the panhandle of Texas, you may want to build up organic matter in your soil. So different plants are good at that. Cereal rye has a lot of biomass and a lot of roots. You may want to build up nitrogen in your soil, and legumes have a special symbiotic relationship with rhizobial bacteria, mm-hmm. which they can fix atmospheric nitrogen and put that into the soil right. and plant usable nitrogen. So cover crops that you use may depend on what you expect out of a cover crop 
And a lot of people use mixes so that they can get a variety of things out of it. But there are also these really neat properties wherein cereal rye has an allelopathic. Allelopathy means that um, it uh, inhibits the growth of other plants. Oh, right. Of course. Uh, so cereal rye has a weed prevention aspect to it. And certain brassicas, I see canola, cabbages, other things can have a nematode inhibiting properties. Oh, that I didn't know. Wow. So insects that prey on plants that have a part of their life cycle in the soil, Mm -hmm. whether it's egg cycle or whether it's nematodes that live in the soil year round and want to chew on our juicy roots, Mm -hmm. certain plants can knock those numbers back and keep them from harming our plants in great numbers. So. There's a lot of different neat qualities that you can exploit from cover crops. And we know from the last 50 to 70 years of conventional research on agriculture that crop rotational systems yield better. Yes. And seem to keep the soil more fertile longer term than just Mm -hmm. cotton, 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 cotton. Well, when you have a cover crop, one of the other things you can have is you know, what would normally be the off-season, a cropping rotation, another plant Mm. in your sequence of crops. Mm -hmm. And this has all kinds of benefits in terms of, you know, not having the same habitat on the same piece of land year in, year out for an insect that preys on that crop. Whether it's the boll weevil and cotton, they can provide uh, pollinator habitat Mm -hmm. in whatever season you're growing them. Uh, you know, uh, different rooting patterns. And this is what really fascinates me is is all the things that we ignore or take for granted about roots. But if you have cotton in the summer and a, uh, a, a small grain or a grass in the winter, cool season grass, the rooting patterns are going to be so Oh, yes, so of co- course they cotton, are. Yes, yes. And that imparts its own little bit of seasoning to the soil <laughs> i like it i there, like right? it yeah. yeah exactly so if a, if a taproot from a cotton plant goes straight down with mm-hmm. very few lateral roots off to the side well that creates a pretty large macro pore that goes straight down and cotton roots aren't known for accessing a lot of phosphorus and potassium out of the soil but they're known for getting deep and accessing nutrients and water down deep and they mm-hmm. have a good bit of strength to to penetrate deeper layers but grasses tend to have all these finer root hairs and many, many more root hairs than uh, than taproot plants ever do. And these root hairs are very successful at getting non-mobile nutrients out of the soil like phosphorus and potassium oh. and bringing them onto the plant. So these nutrients like phosphorus and potassium that don't move, well, the plants, the roots move to them. And they're also growing more laterally. So you have more of this sideways pattern of roots growing than you do in a taproot. And you're accessing more nutrients and pulling them into that system. And then when that system senesces or dies at the end of the season, those those nutrients are allowed to be re-released through you know normal processes mm-hmm. of decay and degradation yeah. and available to the next crop. And if you have another crop, cash or cover, you know, in the short term right after that, well then those nutrients are more uh, rapidly available to go back into the living pool of nutrients, whether it's bacteria surrounding the roots or the fungi or the worms or the 
insects or the roots or the plants. They go back into the living system, and they're allowed to cycle back out as decaying material and go mm -hmm. back in. And any time you really knock down the amount of living active material you have in the soil, the more chance you have of losing those nutrients out of the system, either to reactions that sort of lock them up in a mineral phase in the soil uh -huh. or through high rainfall events that can leach them down below out of the root zone um, or cause, for instance, nitrogen can be lost through leaching, but it can also be lost in heavy rainstorms due to a process called denitrification, where the nitrate form under anaerobic or no oxygen systems, which exist when there's heavy rainfall and waterlogged right. soils, right. that can be lost back to the atmosphere as dinitrogen gas, oh. which is 78, 79% of our atmosphere. Right. So, but it can be recaptured by legumes. Mm -hmm. when, <laughs> so, so it sounds to me like roots are really a storehouse for nutrients. Well, they are. I mean, they're the pathway, right? Mm -hmm. And some plants, the total biomass of that plant can be 30 or 40 percent roots. Wow. Depending on the species. Right. So you're right. Especially when with the grasses. Top dies, right, right. When the top dies, all those nutrients are left on the top of the soil, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the corn stalk or the tomato plant, when we're done picking our tomatoes, they're left on top of the soil. They'll decay and they'll leave their nutrients there. But the roots, when they die off, they redistribute nutrients throughout the soil, depending on the pattern of the roots. Mm -hmm. One of the things I tell people when I teach is that I, I love weeds growing in my yard. Now, you need to hear that correctly. I don't actually love weeds growing in my yard. But when they, <laughs> but when they do show up, what I do is I'll let them grow a little bit and then I'll actually cut them off right below ground level. The top is a nice snack for the chickens and sure. okay. the roots that get left behind, they rot and, you know, basically put compost right in the soil. Am I on the right track here? Well, yeah, compost would have to go through that whole temperature regime. Yeah, yeah they will decay. They are decaying organic matter. Yeah, that. And that just like compost can lead to more uh, long-term stable organic matter that mm -hmm. we call soil humus. Oh yeah. Talk, talk to us about that. Cause that's a really important thing. Well, sure. I mean, soil humus is, is important. One of the reasons I would say it's important is that it is very stable. It doesn't break down rapidly like other organic compounds like sugars and proteins. Mm -hmm. Okay. Humus is not actually a, chemical compound it's not a, a a molecule it's a it's a term we apply to sort of a large mix or class of molecules that sort of have certain similar characteristics and they are uh, they are amorphous and you can picture that old ball and stick model of molecules but picture one about a hundred carbons long that loops around and has rings off of it and everything and uh -huh. it just it's 700 carbons long and it has no shape you can discern. It's just all chaos and it's folded in on itself and it has all these functional groups that include hydroxyls and phosphates and sulfates and, and aminos and everything else. And it's just, you can't classify it and you could never actually analyze this molecule, but there's billions of these that make up humus. And we just say, okay, it's this class of molecules and they behave a certain way chemically 
but they're so large and they're so stable that they don't break down for a long time, but they provide a sort of another type of storehouse in the soil for mm -hmm. the living those living microorganisms to chew on and attack from the edges, right? right? They'll never break it all down, but they need, you know, a little bit of water, and that's a great food source for all kinds of trophic levels of bacteria and fungi. And once you get little, you know, bacterial critters chewing on the outsides of these molecules, then you, you build another trophic level of predators that you know amoebae and protozoa that are able to feed on those things and then you you go up a level and you build this really well layered and well buffered ecology of microorganisms mm. that will that is not so vulnerable to a sudden change in weather or temperature right 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 and so if they're buffered a small change doesn't equal disaster to this community yeah. Perfect. That's really fascinating and mm -hmm. and complex. And when you have a complex and active community, it seems like roots really like that. And so roots behave well in the presence of humus. Mm -hmm. They behave well in the presence of soil charcoal, like you might find from a legacy of 10,000 years of prairie fires or forest fires, oh, natural right. cycles, right? Yes. And they do very well in the presence of a robust community of microorganisms. And so they talk to these organisms. Well, did you hear the quotation marks I put around the word talk? Kind of, but talk more about that. <laughs> <laughs> that one not in quotation a, marks. There is a level of communication that goes back. You might just call it feedback or something, but mm -hmm. there is no such thing as a plant or a root that will grow in a sterile soil. Okay, so if soil doesn't have any kind of microbiology in it, you, you really can't have plant life, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you were to take a sand and put it in a kiln at 400 degrees Celsius, pull it out and then try and grow something in it, it's not gonna work. But if you then you know, mix some compost with that and, and give it a little water and about a week to sort of marinate, you might be on to something. So you've got to have some kind of non-sterile environment. And by that, I mean living microorganisms proliferating in there. Mm -hmm. And when you do, you have these potential interactions. And one of the ones that I might focus on for the purpose of this discussion is the interaction between plant roots and arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. Perfect. Which is a there are many, many species of these fungi, but uh -huh. they're classed as arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi because they have a, a physiological body called an arbuscule, and they infect a plant root. Okay, But it's a mutualistic relationship because the plant gives that fungal organism carbohydrates and other photosynthetic products that that fungus is not able to produce by itself. In return, the fungus has a sort of little tube or, or straw or highway that can transmit everything it finds out in the soil back to the plant. And when this mutualistic relationship is working great at optimum levels, just humming along, the fungus allows the plant roots to extend out 
to eight, ten times the soil volume wow. they could explore on their own. Really? Which is access to eight or ten times the water. Right. Or eight or ten times those nutrients that mm-hmm. don't move in the soil like potassium and phosphorus. And so when you have this this particular mutualism going on, plants do better because they have for less overall energy, remember energy is an important thing in this world, that plant is recovering more nutrients and water for a smaller investment of what it's getting from the sun, mm-hmm. the currency that it gets from our, our solar radiation. And that's a really important deal because left to their own devices, plants would survive with only their roots, but they would never put out as much as they do. Now, they're happy in that situation. Well, right. I'm anthropomorphizing. Sorry. But they no, that's are, okay. They're thriving. <laughs> Let's say they're thriving, right? They and, and they are thriving in a way that makes sense to whatever evolutionary, you know, uh, node point they're at right now. But this works out for us because as, as human beings, mm-hmm. because those plants that we rely on to produce our tomatoes and our zucchinis mm-hmm. and our kales and turnip and mustard greens, yep. those plants give us more of what we want when they're thriving that way as well. I have to so, tell you. I have to tell you, I have known what you're telling me. I didn't know the science behind it until today. And I'm so excited that you explained how it actually works. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we could do a follow-up show just on that relationship. <laughs> you know what? So we may I'm very well you, do that. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that you knew that was a, a thing, right? But you didn't know the science behind it. And I got to tell you, there's a reason that I decided to go down this particular road because there is more unknown out there than any of all of us combined mm-hmm. can tackle right now. Right. And so as a single scientist, I got like, I got to stick my neck out and pick a subject and go down that road. Right. And just start building something. And the reason I chose to look at this particular relationship between roots and our muscular mycorrhizal fungi is because I was as a scientist, I like I like to go down rabbit holes. It's not <laughs> I can why see is, that. Why, why is the sky blue? Well, because when the sunlight comes through, it bends. You know, why does it bend at that angle? Why does that make blue? You know, I got I would always ask these questions of my teachers, and they, eventually they would just be like, "Well, you know, I don't know, Jake. Let's move on." <laughs> and that was always the biggest frustrating thing to me. We didn't have Google when I was in elementary school, right? Um, or or middle school, but yeah. But so I'm like, now as a, as a PhD, we we are trained to teach ourselves, and we are trained to explore the unknown. And this is the part of the unknown that I want to go down because every time I would see one of these presentations or explanations of the importance of a arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi to plant roots, it was just. It was like a black box. It's like they do all these wonderful things. And I was like, but how? Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. No, somebody knows. So I start reading all the, the papers and, well, not all of them. And it turns out there's a, a, a quite a, a, a deep body of knowledge that has elucidated many, many of these details. I just uh, I don't ever want to go out and tell people that these this is an important relationship without being able to explain it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I never want to be that sort of teacher that that can't answer every question, no matter how detailed, how far down that rabbit hole you want to go. I consider myself a failure if I go, 
Uh, I'll have to look that one up and get back to you. <laughs> so I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Okay, so I, I don't know if, if I've truly uh, gotten this out of my system or not, but from an early age, I've been a perfectionist, I guess. Uh-huh. It causes me to expect a lot more out of people I'm on teams with than is reasonable. You know, I, I put, I expect a lot of out of myself, perhaps sometimes I expect more out of other people than, than I am entitled to. Mm-hmm. And this going back to playing uh, little league baseball. I, I got very frustrated when others made errors and you know, somebody, a coach took me aside at one time and said, you know, it's just a game. You're supposed to be having fun. We're also supposed to be a team. And when you right. do, when you do this sort of thing, you're alienating people. Um, and you are, you're creating a space for yourself. That is, I'm paraphrasing the coach. He was actually a, a Presbyterian minister too. He was always avoided saying cuss words and substituted something hilarious instead but, you know, he, he made it clear to me that this wasn't the kind of quality that was going to endear me mm-hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, I don't know, the way I've been wired. So I, I work very hard my whole life, you know, ex- expect something more reasonable out of myself mm-hmm. and uh, even more reasonable out of others. And, and uh, it's very hard in this job not to, to push yourself uh, hard and, and work long hours, uh, particularly because I do a lot of driving. But I, I think at, at the age I'm at now, I'm doing a much better job of making other people feel appreciated mm, and not, mm-hmm. and not uh, expecting, uh, being less of a perfectionist and bringing more and more humor, uh, less seriousness into all situations. Yeah. Got to love uh, what we do. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, and I can tell you, you do. Um, I do. I yeah. do. Uh, yeah. What is, what's the saying? Uh, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Yep. Amen to that. Yeah. That's Amen. right. Yes. Yes. So, what do you consider your biggest success? <laughs> that's my children. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's that's no. It's perfect. A common answer, but they are the best. So, they are musicians and artists and uh, mathematicians and budding scientists wow very thoughtful people who have gotten uh, the best parts of me and and avoided the worst parts mm-hmm. so nice well and you know what as as you've been talking we've been talking now for about 40 minutes as you've been talking i can see the artist in you ah okay it's 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 pretty clear <laughs> that you have an art space for soil, for food, and for sharing with people how to, you know, how to get the best out of what they're growing. So that that that's that in itself is epic. My my listeners always know that I'm looking for that epic, and that I think is epic. Good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I I, I mean, I'm a musician. I'm a horrible drawer, and I try and think creatively about uh-huh. every situation I'm oh, in. I can, I can and get that. Draw from that. Okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. Perfect. What drives you? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's something don't pushing know. you. I make, 
I, I don't. So I want to make a difference. Yeah. I don't. I, okay. Um, I heard something as a child. Think globally. Act locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be somehow. I don't care if someone remembers my name, but uh, to have that butterfly effect thing. And yes, um, whether I even know I made a positive a positive difference or not isn't important. Just that I conduct myself in a way that's consistent with what I think uh, will have a positive impact. And uh, so I look at inefficiencies and in systems and what we might call large or industrial agriculture in mm-hmm. this country, the ways that it has negative impacts and, and positive impacts as well. But I, I try and search for ways to make it better so that we, you know, we leave something better for our children and grandchildren yeah. than we found. And one of the things that, you know, I, I think, again, I mentioned this a couple of times, is thinking about things in terms of sustainability and using what is necessary and not anymore. Mm-hmm. And thinking about that energy cost and the long-term sustainability. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I'm going to recommend, the title is Enriching the Earth. Mm-hmm. And the author named Vaclav Shmiel, and I'm, Vaclav, I hope I didn't mess that up too bad. He's written a lot of great books, but this one, Enriching the Earth, is specifically about the process towards inventing the method by which we produce nitrogen fertilizer uh, in factories around Mm. the world. Mm -hmm. The impact that had, there have been a number of Nobel Prizes awarded both to the men who created the process, Haber and Bosch. I think the Nobel Prize was 1918, but there have been a a few others awarded for people who elucidated more details on this process. including one within the last 30 years even. And the reason that this book has such a big impact on me is it, it's very well explained about not just the men who created this method by which we produce fertilizer from the nitrogen in our atmosphere that is now plant available, the impact that had on the world. There were 1.6 billion people at that point, and we're mm-hmm. expecting there are six over 6 billion now, and we're right. expecting somewhere close to 10 soon. What that meant towards being able to feed all those people, and we just wouldn't be able to do it without that. Yeah. So Perfect. I think it's well written. Mm-hmm. It's a great story. Uh, warts, these gentlemen are explained warts and all, and then it really touches on how that story affects the adjacent systems and, and our world and how we're just not aware of that particular really cool story. Right. Called Enriching Our Soil. Uh, Enriching the Earth by Vaclav Schmiel. Perfect. When did it come out? Ooh. Ish. Uh, 2001. Oh, all right. So it's... it's... Oh, oh, let me mention, though, that Please. my master's advisor loaned me this book. And I don't normally read a lot of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Because I read a lot of scientific papers. That's enough nonfiction for me. He gave me this one, and it was like reading a really, really great fiction book. Oh, nice. Thank you, Dr. David Kissel, for loaning me that book. Uh You know, it's it's driven uh, a lot of things I've done over the years. Perfect. Perfect. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Oh, pay attention. 
when you eat food, you know, mm. think about it. When you grow food, pay attention to the soil and what it's doing to it. Think about it. Consider it. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Perfect, perfect. Well, thank you yeah. so much for joining us on the show today, Jake. Well, thank you, Greg. Absolutely. Great to be here. Absolutely. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, I have a faculty page, and so if you look up my name at Texas A&M University, you will see a picture of my bald head okay. and my email and so forth and so on. But I also have a Twitter account. Perfect. And that is root underscore notes. Oh, nice. As I, yeah, I'm really fascinated by roots. And so I tweet frequently about things we're doing in the field. I try and be pithy and substantive because that is the strength of Twitter, isn't mm-hmm. it? Oh, that is uh, the case. That is the case. <laughs> and I also have a blog through the university here, and it is Root Notes. I didn't have to put an underscore under that. There you go. It's just Root Notes at Perfect. tamu.edu. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you once again. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash root notes. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Nature doesn't waste energy, and by using these natural cycles to work in our favor, we can harvest both fish and plants. Let us teach you how. Text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you will receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.